So Monday, October 17, another day in paradise. Up, down, up, down, up, down. Uh, what's noteworthy today? Well, all the garbage was flying today. So mean reversion. I guess less obvious. Um, I always like to look at the stuff that's not Captain Obvious stuff. I do note that the um, U.S. bond market, where yields had come down significantly uh, earlier during the day, I think down by as many 10 or 12 basis points, um, bonds sold off again to the point where the 10 years back up over 401. So that's interesting. Obviously, pound sterling uh, was strong, um, given the news out of the U.K. Uh, the gilt market was firm. Uh, sterling was firm. It took the euro with it. Um, so it's a very macro-driven kind of a market. Again, trying to call the market on a day-to-day basis is a fool's errand. Uh, most notably, the yen <laughs> can't get out of its own way. It weakened again. So we'll see. I mean, who knows? It's just so much volatility and so much leverage out there. So as has become our recent custom, um, I'm just going to read from today in history, just to, for those of us that need uh, to study enough history, just a couple of... Uh, uh, do you knows uh, useless cocktail trivia so on this date in history on october 17 1933 albert einstein arrived in the united states as a refugee from nazi germany uh, in 1610 french king louis the eighth age nine was crowned king five months after the assassination of his father what else we got here 1931 al capone convicted in chicago of tax evasion and so on and so forth. All right, enough of that. It's not why we came here, but I try to learn a little bit every day. If not, learning a new vocabulary word, maybe learning a useless factoid about history. So there you are. So anyway, we got a great room. Fred Hickey, who uh, really requires a little introduction. Um, one of the great thought leaders out there in our business. Actually kind of maintains a lowish profile. I mean, you don't see him on Bubble Vision, but he writes the high-tech strategist, which has been... Uh, which I've been an avid reader of for, for years, if not decades. Fred, I think, and he'll correct me, I think Fred first came to uh, prominence. I can remember back in the good old days of the NASDAQ bust, uh, Fred was out in the vanguard waving the flag, uh, calling out the bubble. And one of the, one of the Fred, one of the, one of the you, 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 most things generally forgettable, but one of the things I've etched in my mind is that table of the 10 or 20 stocks, you know, with, whatever it was, over $500 million or billion dollar market cap. So I remember that in your newsletter time and time again. So in any event, Frank made, have, Fred, have it in front of me. Fred made quite a name for himself back then. Um, and then I think the central banksters, starting with uh, Mr. Magoo, a.k.a. Alan Greenspan, onto Bernanke, Yellen, um, and Powell, um, kind of made him seek refuge elsewhere. And he's had a good, he had a good judgment. Uh, not shorting so much in recent years. And instead, uh, I think, did quite well in the precious metals sector. So Fred is a um, quite a renaissance man, can speak to uh, a lot of topics. What I really like, he's got a very good macro grasp on things. So Fred, uh, we can take it wherever you want, talk about gold stocks, talk about tech stocks. But why don't you just start, just briefly, just talk about um, your beginnings, how you got in this business, how did you get to where you are right now? Take it away, Fred. Sure. Uh, well, I grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts, and you'll be familiar with the area, George, because you've been around that area a bit. And uh, it was the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. And it became a hellhole by the time I was a, a teenager with the highest unemployment rates in the country. But uh, that opened the door for, uh, for all the mini computer companies, including Wang Labs, Digital Equipment, Data General, Prime Computer, the whole crowd of them. 
which came from nowhere and kind of kind of beat out the min- the, the mainframe types um, to be great uh, great successes. And I watched Wang Labs grow. I was in college at the time in the seventies, late seventies, and I watched Wang gl- grow. And I said to myself, if uh, I ever had any money, uh, I would put which I didn't have any at the time, uh, I would put some money into these uh, fast-growing tech stocks. And in 1979, after I was out of Notre Dame, uh, I did have a few hundred dollars, and I, I started putting it into Wang and Prime. And, uh, and one of them tripled, and, I, and one of them quadrupled, and I can't remember which one did which, but the effect was the same. And I think it was the same kind of effect we've seen on a lot of investors in recent years here. You get pretty excited when you can see those kind of returns. Now, over time, I learned that you just can't just chase uh, high growth. <laughs> there are much more to it than that. Uh, you have to consider, you know, all, soup to nuts, all the variables from a macro all the way down to the individual companies and competition and you name it. Uh, so uh, I went to work. I, uh, I worked for General Telephone Electronics. It was a very large telecom uh, company with 200,000 employees. I was in the management training program, and I was being shuffled around to various spots uh, in this program where they tracked you. And uh, I did that for 10 years, and my last job there was as a controller at a printed circuit board facility. So I had both technology, my feet in the technology world, as well as the finance world. In In the 1980s, I was in Stanford, Connecticut, which is the headquarters of GTE, close. It was, it was close, obviously, to Wall Street. I looked into working on Wall Street, uh, took a couple of interviews, but found out that they weren't going to be paying a, a lower level analyst job, what I was making at that time in GTE. So my wife told me, you can, you can make, someday you can do it on your own. Uh, in 1987, she bought me a computer a printer and told me to get at it because there were a whole bunch of people that were following what I was doing in GTE. And because I was moving around, they didn't know what I was, I had a great success. They didn't know, they, they wanted to keep up with what I was doing. So I started that newsletter, that was 1987, so I'm in my 36th year of, of writing this now every month. Uh, somewhere in there, uh, I uh, around early 2000s, uh, Alan Abelson of Barron's called me and I went on the Barron's Roundtable for 10 years. I know George, you were in there, I think a little before me, uh, but I was there for 10 years. Uh, and, uh, and then left uh, after that, uh, uh, and I've been writing the newsletter since. You mentioned going on CNBC. Well, I've turned them down every time. I think I was on, last I looked, it was 18 years in a row. I just didn't want anything to do with that. Uh, so uh, I do keep a lower profile. I'm just curious. I think I know the answer, but what is your reason for turning them down? Obviously, it'd be good for good exposure for you, good, good to get more newsletter rise, but why, good, 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 good to get more readers. Why do you turn them well, down? Thankfully, I never really had to advertise. We never have advertised in the, uh, I worked for a brokerage firm in Boston after I left GTE after 10 years, I'd done very well and I could go out on my own. And, um, and I went, went to a technology brokerage house and they introduced me to a whole bunch of wall street types in Boston, Fidelity, as you know, Fidelity and, and a whole bunch of others in Boston and also in New York. And after I, I didn't stay there very long because I wasn't actually researching. I was spending all my time communicating. Um, and uh, I left there. And but, by, but what happened was that it was all word of mouth. I had those people that I had met in New York and Boston. They wanted to become subscribers, and they did. And then it was all word of mouth that I've never had to advertise, uh, which has been great. 
you know, we don't even have a website. We just never had to do that. We've always relied on uh, on word of mouth, and it's and it's been successful for all this period of time. So, uh, you know, I just don't like that crowd uh, that that really watches. Uh, I had gone on Bloomberg before. Uh, I I just don't like the crowd that watches CNBC. Uh, it's a, a you know a more uneducated uh, uneducated uh, you know uh, uh, retail kind of group and. The, the people that are, get our my newsletter are, are pretty, pretty, you know, most of them are profess- professionals, pension funds, hedge funds or, uh, you know, advisors, financial advisors. And there's some retail, but uh, it's an educated crowd. And in order for you to be a subscriber, you have to get you have to hear about it already, which is what I like. I'm not bringing you in. You came in because you wanted to come in. Got it. So how did you go from. Um... So you started the newsletter. What year was that? And 1987. Oh, 87. Okay. And then, and then you really, I think I first, I mean, you really uh, rose to prominence, I believe, with uh, your preeminent role in calling out the NASDAQ bubble, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. And- Even a little before then, it was in the mid 90s. Um, I was still, uh, started getting interviewed in Barron's. Uh, and at that time in Grants, I actually spoke at a Grants conference, replacing Stephen Forbes was running for president that year. Uh, and uh, so that was even before it really got going. That was the mid nineties. Um, but yeah, I was, uh, I was known as a bear. I had been bullish on tech uh, since my, since the days I started investing in 1979, uh, only tech, that's all I was doing up until 1999. Uh, and then I sold my last, uh, my last uh, tech stocks. They were year two cut thousand software stocks in late 1998. And then I was going short. Um, Got it. That that what what that what I believed was a great bubble at the time, a tech right. bubble. So let, let's bring it to, to present circumstances, Fred. So yeah. you really uh, don't spend a lot of your time, or you have not even spend a lot of time. Let me rephrase that. You have you have counseled not being terribly uh, active or short in a big way tech stocks, and instead you focused your energy uh, on being long precious metals. So maybe you could speak to that and obviously the big picture view behind that. And I'm just, it's going to be T-ball time. You, I'm just going to set it up for you. You can have a go at the central banksters and you can talk about everything that's wrong with their monetary policy and, and what your thoughts are the way forward, going forward, going forward. Thanks. Take it away. Yeah, sure. Uh, so um, in 2000, uh, I knew we were in a tech bubble. It broke. Finally, that was great. Worked really well for me. It was tough in 1999. Uh, and I was doing it through puts, not not through uh, not shorting. So I wasn't uh, going to get taken out like so many other great short investors did. Um, and so, uh, but it worked out uh, very well in, into 2002. But I noticed, uh, I had noticed over time that the Fed was uh, increasingly intervening every time. I mean, every time there was a problem, starting in Mexico, then Brazil, and you know, Asia, and long-term capital, and then in 2000, Greenspan took rates down from six and a half percent. To uh, to all the way down to one percent, which was a historic low at the time, and I said these guys are crazy and they're not going to stop. Uh, and I knew at the time that gold had been at a twenty-year bear market, and I knew that tech, because it had been in a, you know a great well that we had been in a great bull market for almost twenty years as well, that 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 group was likely to be a, a subperformer going forward and possibly gold because of the actions of the central bank, uh, that that would be an outperformer. And so uh, really I didn't, I didn't start investing heavily until 2002 in, in start investing in the miners there. 
I had some gold coins, not too much uh, for a couple of years. And I watched it. And then I started heavily investing there. And that was a good thing because uh, uh, gold did take off. It was a great bull market. Uh, it went up uh, from $250 to 1911 by 2011. So that was seven and a half times, which is interesting because that's bigger than the bull market that we've had in stocks, uh, which uh, from from 2008, nine to uh, to today. Well, not today. Well, we peaked at 4,800 on the S&P. So a similar size bubble, both cases. Uh, well, I don't want to call it, uh, the gold part. I didn't think as much as was a bubble, but it was it reached overvalued uh, uh, overvalued levels back in 2011 and 12. So, um, but but what happened was was I, I said these guys are crazy. They're going to they're going to continue to intervene. This is problematic. I don't see them changing, and of course they didn't. Uh, it only got crazier and crazier. And of course, no one. I would never have imagined that you'd have a nine trillion dollar uh, balance sheet at the end of all of this. That they would print two trillion dollars in in over sixty days. That they would increase the money supply by forty percent over two years. Uh, it just it just it's just crazy. And so for the moment. Um, the Fed is acting tough. Uh, Paul, uh, Jay Powell is talking as if he's the next, well, he's calling himself <laughs> essentially the next Paul Volcker. They've raised rates very rapidly here, fastest pace uh, I've ever seen, uh, going from zero to, uh, well, will, what will be supposedly four and a half plus percent. And at the same time, taking the, uh, uh, the balance sheet down from nine trillion dollars down by one or two trillion. Uh, that's their goal. Now, I've watched them try to get out of uh, these uh, these money printing periods. Uh, even when they started in 2010 and 2011, they had tried to pull back on QE1 and QE2 and couldn't do it. And that was small potatoes the, compared to what, what they're dealing with today. So I've been a skeptic all along here, and I continue to be a skeptic. Uh, I wasn't surprised when the Bank of England, they're all compatriots, these central banks, when you know, one day they were going to be tightening and the next day they were printing again overnight. Um, that, that didn't surprise me that I thought that uh, you would be dealing uh, when you have, when it, when it came to a crisis, uh, we would find out that, uh, that Jay Powell was no Paul Volcker. Now back in 2012, uh, Powell was uh, on the fed and he was one of the few, he's one of the few non-central bank uh, economists, I should say. He, he knew, he understood then that you couldn't, um, you shouldn't be doing what they were doing. He said he would create a bond bubble. He would create moral hazard. He laid out all of the reasons why you shouldn't be, you know, money printing. Uh, you can never get out of it. But he still voted with it, uh, even knowing that. And then, of course, in 2018-19, when, when we had a, a, a hissy fit with interest rates, uh, not unlike what the Bank of England has had to deal with, once again, he pivoted very quickly. So all this tough talk about Volcker, I don't believe. And I believe that we'll be heading for a crisis too, uh, similar to, uh, well, we never know where it's gonna come from, but it could be in the bond market. As you mentioned today, the 10-year the is back over 4%, 4 and, um, and uh, there is a, uh, there's concern about illiquidity in the market. We know that that bond market is a liquid. Uh, and and the, the Treasury itself and Yellen, was, they, were both, uh, they were talking about uh, uh, the illiquidity last late last week, and even possibly uh, buying some bonds if if need be. So so clearly they're concerned about uh, things getting out of control as well.
Hey, hey, hey Fred, um, Fred, Fred, can I ask you something? I saw a headline it, last week, and I don't know if it was something from the Babylon Bee of the Onion. Was it real or not? There was something about yelling, asking the banks if they should be buying bonds or something. Was that real? Did yeah, they that? floated that. That was not that they floated that, uh, you know, uh, uh, they're certainly talking to them, I think, about that because of the illiquidity that both the banks and uh, the Treasury knows about. The last cup last week's auctions were pretty poor. The dealers were left with a lot of extra extra inventory. Those are 10s and 30s. Another week from now, we'll be dealing with uh, five sevens and 20s. And uh, the, the auction of those a couple of weeks before uh, the latest uh, 1030, that was poor as well. So you have to look and you say, well, uh, you know, we have this massive debt. The Fed is uh, now reducing their balance sheet. So they're now sellers in the we have one point four trillion dollar deficit. Uh, that's in uh, not in a recession. Uh, I'm I believe we will be in a recession if we're not already there. Uh, when when you get a recession, you end up with uh, lower receipts and uh, tax receipts coming in right now. They've been flooding in. Um, but the tax receipts are starting to slow. So in the latest, uh, in the latest uh, August uh, budget deficit numbers, receipts were up 13%, but a couple of months ago, they were up 24%. And almost all of that came from the increase. The 71% came from individual income taxes. Well, what is that? That's the, those are capital gains. You have a big surge there because of capital gains, not because economic activity was up 13%. And those uh, start to go away of course, as the stock market fall, falls apart, which is what's been happening. Um, on the other hand, you have government spending, which was up 19%. And you, with the Biden administration, we've seen you know the $1 trillion infrastructure program. We have the $1.9 trillion post-COVID spending. We have $400 billion plus for climate change. We have a chip sack. We spend for Ukraine with $400 billion plus, maybe a trillion to student loans. So spending is out of control. You're not going to have you're going to have budget deficits again that are going to be over trillion and maybe approaching three trillion. So then you have to ask yourself, who's going to buy that? Well, the Fed was the buyer and now they're not. In fact, now the, the Fed is a seller uh, to the tune of, you know, 60 plus billion dollars a month in treasuries and another 30 in mortgage mortgage backs. Uh, so they're out. You know, that's 700 plus billion dollars in treasuries alone on a year annual basis that they have to cover, plus these deficits. Plus, China is no longer buying. They used to be $1.3 trillion uh, they owned of our treasuries. They've taken it down to under a trillion. And I'm told that they're accelerating their, their uh, selling of our treasuries. And, of course, that makes sense given the acrimonious relationship and deteriorating relationship we have with China right now. Russia sold all of their, virtually all of their treasuries. Japan isn't, isn't buying anymore, uh, or they're certainly slowing down quite a bit because they don't want to they don't want to undermine the yen anymore as the yen has kind of collapsed here as well. So if you look at it, who's, who, who's going to buy? Uh, they're going to rely on individual investors to cover uh, a two, $3 trillion deficit, annual deficit, plus whatever the Fed is able to do? No way. So I'm not surprised that we're seeing over 4% in the, in the 10 year. So, uh, you know, this is going to lead to a problem. Um, that may be one of them. Now, you know, I, this, this stock market bubble that we had is, was all driven by money printing. Uh, you know, it's no coincidence that the market took off in 2000, late 2008, 2009. That's exactly when they started QE1. And it, it went on and on and on and on, as I said. So we got to these crazy levels uh, and it generated this gigantic bubble. And when I talk about gigantic, 
you know, I saw you put out on your Twitter feed, George, just uh, this weekend, um, market cap to GDP at 205%. Well, uh, you know, that's, uh, that, that's, uh, that's way above where we were at the peak, at the bubble peak, the highest levels we've ever seen in, in 2000. Okay, that was like 140%. And you know, even today, even with the decline in the stock market, we're still, that's still in the 95th percentile. At the bottom in 2002, it wasn't 205% of GDP, it was, it was 0.75, 75%. In, in 2008, it was 60%. In 1974, at the end of that bear market, it was 35%. We're at 205%. That's incredible. On a price-to-sales basis, the dot-com peak was 2.36%. We went to 3.1% here in this bubble. Uh, almost 50%, 30, oh no, 30, 40% bigger than what, what, what was that 2000 bubble. And today we're just barely below the dot-com peak, uh, peak at 2.2 at times. Um, you know, PE levels are high too, relatively. I guess they're around 16 right now. Um, but, you know, that's on peak margins. And uh, going forward, if we're in a recession, which I believe we are, earnings are going to come down for that reason. Uh, and all of the things that have led to these record margins over this period of time, they've grown and grown and grown, are all reversing. So you now have a spike in interest rates. You have investment-grade bonds going from 2 to 6%. You have junk bonds back to 9%. It's all going to weigh on corporate profits. Oil prices up near $90, $100 a barrel. Natural gas prices up 73%. Corporate tax rates rising. Inflation costs rising. Uh, the strong dollar, which is up 16% year over year, that hits all the multinationals in the U.S. And then maybe most importantly, the reverse globalization effects. And, you know, a lot of our, a lot of our, there's a lot of tech companies particularly have done very well um, over time here. Uh, using China as a manufacturing hub, and I'll give you an example because it's the it's the number one stock in uh, you know valued stock out there, and it's Apple. So uh, Apple just came out with a new iPhone, the iPhone 14. They just introduced it in September. The prior iPhone, iPhone 13, had uh, 20 percent of 20 percent of its uh, I should say the iPhone 14 production costs are 20% higher than iPhone 13s. And that's because they're using more proprietary chips, but they're also shifting away from China. Right? So the U.S. content went up from 22.5% to 32%. And so their costs are going up 20%. And that means their margins are going to be under pressure because they're not going to be able to, to raise prices the way they have been, especially with the dollar. So when we look to what, you know, what may be a problem going forward with Apple, and I can talk about that more, there are more problems there. Uh, one of them is going to be margins. It might be the most important one, but it's not just Apple. It's everybody that was relying and are now trying to uh, redomicile their manufacturing somewhere else. And in Apple's case, you know, you had a really efficient supply chain there in Apple, all these factories supplying the main factory, the assembler of Foxconn, high, very efficient that have been working that way for, for over a decade. And now it's it's uh, it's shifting, and that's not going to go so successfully. Hey, Fred, as, uh, yeah, Fred, Fred, can we just let me just dive in on that if, if I may? So you make an ex many excellent points, but specifically on the on the deglobalization um, and supply chains, and uh, you know I've heard from many companies that there's really only one place to do this offshore. It's China because you got you know massive internal market, blah blah blah, 
and you know, skilled labor force, this, that, and everything else, and see so say, well, you know, what if they move to Vietnam, or what if they move to this place, that place? Um, is 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 it really is it is it easy or difficult for companies to relocate their manufacturing to places away from China for tech for high tech? Well, they're they're doing that already. Uh, they're they've moved they've been moving some non mostly non phone mostly Mac and and iPad stuff over to uh to, uh to, not to Taiwan to Vietnam and to India. Uh, I've read estimates that it would take over a decade for Apple to move all of their iPhone production or most of their iPhone production out of China. It's not easy, obviously, when, when we have all the suppliers. There's thousands, of, tens of thousands of parts that go into this stuff, into your PCs and into your phones and everything else. And, and many of them, you know, or many of that stuff is sourced or right around in, within China. So it's not just, you know, moving from, a, you know, a Foxconn factory from, from China to, uh, to, to Vietnam, but also the whole supply chain moves. And so, uh, not easy. Not easy to do. And, and I don't think people have factored that in. Right. But so, uh, it's been very, it's been so, very profitable uh, for everyone to have everyone to have China as the manufacturing yeah, hub. Right. That's, that's an excellent point. I don't think people really fully. You do, but I think the average man, even myself, don't fully appreciate the extent of it. That's a, that's that's really interesting. Um, yes, and especially now with the you know China. Apple had a deal with China where they were uh, were going to invest two hundred seventy five billion dollars into China. It was several years ago. It was a five-year deal. Uh, kept meant, meant that there was no uh, China never went after Apple like they did Cisco, for example. Right when we went after Huawei and stopped their ability to get any parts, uh, ch- uh, China went after Cisco, but not Apple. Um, it was hands off at the time because of because of the commitment that Apple had. Uh, this was all reported in the Wall Street Journal um, maybe a year or two ago. Uh, now that deal's over. And the relationship with China is deteriorating, you know, fairly rapidly here. Uh, and uh, so now they're going to be more vulnerable. And the, and, and the more they move out of China, the more vulnerable they get. I don't think anybody factors that in. Terrific. So, Fred, why don't we um, – God, there's so much to talk about. Maybe talk well, – I also want to talk about the super bubble, just not just the valuations, because there's a bunch of other reasons why yeah, yeah, I think go, it's go a super for, bubble. Go for it, Fred. I'm just going to sit back and enjoy okay. it. Keep going. Uh, so, so, you know – so I talked about the valuations. They were historic, right? Um, but you also, you know, this is, uh, this is, so you'd call this a super bubble. Uh, uh, Jerry um, Grantham of, of GMO calls this a super bubble, the fourth he's seen in the past hundred years. And the other three were 1929 and the Dow fell 90%. Okay. 1929 to 1933. The top tech stock at that time, it was better, bigger, better than any other tech stock we have today, was RCA, Radio Corporation of America. Uh, it soared 10 times in the 1920s and then plunged 97%. Okay, 97%. In Japan, that was the second super bubble. Um, that went from 40,000 to 8,000. That was an 80% decline, right? In 2000, the tech bubble, we saw the NASDAQ drop 83%. The um, the top you know you mentioned you mentioned earlier the top ten tech stocks uh, that I had you know I was putting in my newsletter back then twenty years ago, and uh, um, the t- those ten top ten tech stocks were also the top twenty market caps in the world. Of those ten, only one of them is a, has a, has exceeded its market cap back then. All the others are down. So for example, number two, Cisco. 
had a $574 billion market cap. It's 164. It's down 71% from 20 years ago. Intel, 500 to 100, down 80% from 20 years ago. Nokia, 289 to, this is number five. Nokia, 289 to 24 billion, 92% from 20 years ago. IBM down 58%. Nortel went bankrupt. So now it's not even there. Uh, Ericsson down, uh, not, it, it fell 96%. It's barely recovered at any of it. Uh, and then you had Sun Micro and EMC, which both fell 96% uh, in the 2000, and two, 2000 2002 timeframe. And, you know, they required a, a very low market valuation levels. Uh, in you know later on by Dell and Oracle, so you can see what happens when you get into super bubble. You're not talking about a 25% decline in stocks, okay, or a 33% decline in uh, in uh, in the Nasdaq. You're talking much bigger. Uh, you know, Jeremy uh, Grantham, um, he's he's calling for 2,500 on the on the uh, S and P. You know, that's so that was his level, and he thinks we're in the final stage of this. He just said this a month ago. And this is a guy. This is a guy who was a uh, long record. Had been around for all. Oh, he's eighty-three years old. Been around forever. He's he's called every bubble, uh, and he's the historian on these things. And so he thinks we're going a lot level, lot lower, and and that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, when we look at the valuations we still have today. You have Apple at a twenty-four PE. Well, <laughs> I went back and uh, I, I keep track of I keep track of these tech stocks. I've been doing this for forty years, over forty years, and every weekend I keep. I still do this manually. I keep track of about 100 tech stocks. Uh, and, uh, and so I can tell you that um, Apple doesn't trade at 24 times earnings. Historically, it doesn't. So at the low in 2009, after that, it was an, it was an 8 PE. All right. It never, and it went from 2000 all the way from 2000 and all the way from 2009 to 2017. It never got, never got above 19. Most of the time is 10 to 12, 13, 14 PE, ratio, PE ratios. It's twice that level right now, twice that level with no growth. Um, analysts are expecting, you know, single digit growth here or, and that's, that's, they're, they're optimistic. They're optimistic. Uh, so same thing with Microsoft. They're 25 PE. That, that at the low in, at the low in 2009, Microsoft was a, was an eight PE. And, uh, and that one didn't get going until, again, until 2015, uh, before it got above 19 PE. And these companies are far bigger than they were uh, uh, several years ago now. So you can see um, the kinds of losses that could be ahead of you if the Fed doesn't come in and print huge amounts of money again, which they probably will. So I, I don't think we'll see these single-digit PEs. We always saw a single-digit yeah, I've been around for a long time, as you have, uh, 1990s. I wasn't there in 1974, but I know the numbers. Uh, 1980s uh, bear markets, uh, those were single-digit PEs when the market finally bottomed, uh, not, you know, not 16 times inflated earnings. Um, so so uh, if the Fed doesn't come in, if he really is Paul Volcker, then you are you are you are at risk of huge losses from here. Uh, so we're nowhere near the bottom. You get these very sharp rallies. We've seen one here just the last couple of days. Those are bear market rallies. The sharper they are, the more certain they're bear market rallies. We saw that in we saw that in. Uh, forgot to turn up my phone. Uh, hold on a second. Uh, pull the plug on it. Sorry about that. Um, 
So we saw that. Oh, I forgot what I was saying. What, can, you, can you remind me yeah, where yeah, it was, no, George? You, 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 you were saying that the, 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 you see these uh, vigorous rallies. By definition, they're bear market rallies. Yeah, they're price. bear market rallies. So we saw a huge one in the summer. We're seeing another one here. Uh, you know, it's just it's just the nature of it. In the 2000, 2002 time frame, I think we had a dozen of those. You know, and, and even in during that time frame, uh, there were like 380 down days and 300 and something uh, up days. So, you know, when you have bear markets there, oftentimes uh, they call it, a, you know, down an escalator, but I mean, down an elevator. But in reality, a lot of times they're saw, sawtooth with a lot of rallies. If, if, uh, for, that, for, and for, what they for, do is those rallies suck people in to destroy the maximum amount of capital. So, Fred, let, let me ask you, given, I mean, you've made it clear where the end game is, but sequencing this, do you think they're going to have to break something called a car accident or train wreck in the markets before they blink? Or do you think or do you think they're going to kind of like they're, they're going to fade and change their mind? Um, I, I think because they were so embarrassed by um, their latest. They, I mean, look, they've been wrong on everything, right? Uh, they, they were wrong. On, they didn't. Subprime was contained. There would be no housing bubble. There was never any tech. There was never tech, tech bubble. Uh, always wrong. hundred percent. hundred percent of the time. But they were really, really wrong on this inflation where they first told you the problem was deflation. That was only a year ago. Uh, and then earlier this year it became, uh, you know, uh, it was it was a trans, um, it was, you know, short term when was going to wasn't going to last. Uh, and then uh, it got us so out of control, inflation did, where, you know, we went to 40-year highs, that uh, that now they have to seem to, to have any credibility. They have to seem that they're, they're going to be very tough here. And, and their actions and their words are tough. So we have kind of have peak hawkishness. But like I said, with the Bank of England, we, we saw how quickly that changes. And, and I think with given Powell's track record, he 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 uh, he has never been uh, well. I know somebody that knows him pretty well, and he said uh, characterized him as a wimp. So uh, I expect that when something breaks, and like I said, there was a bond market that broke in 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 England. Uh, we have troubles in our bond market right now with the uh, illiquidity. Could be that. Could be something else. There's all sorts of uh, all sorts of things that they could trip over. Once once a crisis occurs, like we saw in 2019, you know, or COVID, when they really went out of control, uh, any kind of crisis, whatever it is, they will then go back to printing, and we won't see these low PEs. But until they do that, until we hit the crisis, we're going, we're trending lower, uh, even though we'll have these uh, sharp rallies and in, in, in dispersed. Makes sense. So, Fred, why don't we do this? Um, I could listen to you all all day, um, and I want to get some other folks involved in the convo. But before we do that, could you just spend a couple minutes talking about? I mean, the logical extension from what you're saying is I mean, it's pretty clear why you're interested in precious metals and and, 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 and precious metal stocks. Just give us a couple minutes on, on on gold and the gold stocks, please. Thank you. Right. Okay. So, gold. Uh, let me tell you a story about what happened in 2000, 2002. Uh, it's very interesting because it applies to today. So back then, um, you know, we were in a bear market. We were um, uh, the stock market. All the kind of things that you wanted to see if you were a gold bull were happening. Um, the stock market finally broke. Uh, the money wasn't all pouring into tech any longer. Uh, it was, you know, that was just taking up everything. It was sucking in all money. So the tech, tech sector was. Um, so that stock market broke. We were he we were in heading towards and into a recession 
In 2001, Greenspan, as I mentioned earlier, slashed rates. He cut rates twice in January, two, 250 basis points cuts in January alone. And there were 11 cuts that year, taking it all the way down to 1.75%. One would have thought gold, gold would have gone up in all of that, and it didn't. Okay, the year, uh, there was even 9-11 during that time frame. So that was in 2001. 9-11 occurred, and still gold did not go up that year. Did not go up. It opened at $273 and it closed right around that, around 260 to 200. only a couple of dollars difference, flat, flat on the year, despite all of that. Okay. Now, there's a lot of people that are frustrated today because the Fed is printing all this money and all, the, all of this kind of stuff. Uh, obviously, they're out of control. Uh, gold should be going higher. Well, uh, in, 2000, in 2001, uh, it didn't go higher. Well, what happened? What happened was, was that the dollar was going up at that time. And the dollar went to, interestingly, a high of 113, almost where it is today. So it went from 100 in, in 1999 all the way to 113, even as the Fed was slashing rates. Uh, you know, a little strange, but that was what was happening. And so gold didn't really take off then uh, until 2003. Uh, 2000, I should say 2002, late, February, around that time frame, um, into 2003, and the dollar started to fall. So we were, we've had three great periods of time in the last 50 years where the dollar was grossly all overvalued. One was in 1985, um, uh, uh, and uh, uh, then you also had it in the late 1990s and early 2000s, and then today. And this is actually our, our evaluation on our purchasing power parity basis is higher today than it was in, in 2000, but not as high as it was in 1985. So, so the dollar is, is doing the same thing again here. So we have all of these great things. We would think that this, that this should be very good for gold. The market's breaking now and all of that. Where you know we're heading a recession, um, gold usually does well. When the stocks don't do well, gold does well when you're in a downturn. Uh, gold does well when you're cutting rates. So these are all uh, gold does well when interest rates are negative. They do best when interest rates are negative and with 8% rates of inflation, CPI, and only 4, 4% rates of, uh, of uh, 10 year or, or less on the, on the Fed funds, three, um, it should be good. But the dollar has been extraordinarily strong. And of course, there are reasons for that. Um, but so what one of the things we're, we're probably waiting for is a break in the dollar. And that has to do with confidence in the fed i believe so i think when 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 greenspan was cutting rates the way he was slashing them in in 2001 uh i think they still believed but but if you remember it didn't work the stock market kept going down and then he finally had to cut rates again in 2002 and then again in 2003 by then they had lost faith in him and the dollar started to decline well here we still have our our investors here particularly in the west still have a lot of faith in the Fed. And that shows up uh, in the strong dollar and uh, in their belief that whatever the, whatever the Fed does, you're gonna, it's going to affect the stock market. So uh, I'm looking for the dollar to, at some point, it's over, grossly overvalued. It will decline. Uh, you know, it may continue to be strong for a while longer. I don't know. It may have already peaked. I don't know. I don't know if anybody could have predicted that in February of 2002, that would have been the top after it had been rallying for, uh, for, uh, for a long, long time, for over a decade. Um, but it is overvalued. And 
so I think that uh, you you know you gold does have all of these positives in, in in front of them. Now on a short-term basis, there are even more positives because uh, the sentiment numbers for gold, for example, the, the DSI for gold went to recently went to seven, which is uh, extremely low. We saw that in 2018, uh, which was a, the last bottom we had for gold at 1180. We saw it in at the end of 2015 when we uh, also were we had single-digit DSI as well. It was always like five and six at those two times, and both of those were enormous rallies. Um, particularly for gold miners, um, they went up 155, 165% over those two periods. Uh, the 2018 to 2020 rally in gold, uh, that uh, was a 75% rally in gold and 165% increase. Uh, so we had what we had there was we had very low sentiment, and we have that again today. Another measure of sentiment is open interest on the COT report which is 431,000 as of today, uh, which is the lowest in seven years. Okay, and every low that we've had in gold, 20, March of 2021, it was a little higher than that, uh, 450,000. In 2020, that gold low was 480,000. Uh, May 2009, 440, all the way, uh, 2018 low, 450. So this, but every time you went to those low levels, around 450, 460, whatever it is, you would always have a rally. Well, we're 431. And that's the lowest in seven years. So it shows the lack of interest and the potential for uh, Western investment interest to come in. Um, the other, another area is uh, that we're seeing a huge premiums for gold. Now, what's been happening is, is that there's been tremendous buying of gold overseas. Uh, so if you look at gold, gold has not done badly in non-dollar terms. It's only down 10% in dollar terms, which is actually not bad relative to the 25% decline in the S&P and 33% in the NASDAQ, but it isn't the kind of gains that you're seeing elsewhere in the world where the dollar isn't obviously affected. So, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at in yen terms, you're looking at uh, gold up 16%, in euro terms, 5%, uh, Chinese terms, 3%, British pound, 9%. Uh, and then if you have really bad currencies like in Turkey, uh, whether it was uh, gold's up 26%. Well, those are the buying countries, China, Turkey, places like that. They're the ones that physically buy gold. And what we have seen is massive shifts from east, from west to east. Uh, we've seen premiums for gold shoot up. Uh, just this weekend, I heard from a guy in Blanchard, very large, he's a high-level guy, he's been around for 30 years. He said he's never seen these kind of level of premiums for gold and silver. Silver is even crazier. Um, he's never seen those in 30 years that he's done it. Now, the largest bullion dealer in the country uh, also has the same kind of thing. They're seeing 10% increases over the spot price for gold. Uh, this is now, this is mint, this is US in US, so retail buyers are buying it. Uh, but overseas, you have $50, uh, $50 premium in China right now, very high been running that way 30 to 50 dollar premiums for six weeks unusual turkey is even higher that's 80 dollars uh, india is 60 dollar premiums so there's a shortage of gold for physical gold but what's been happening is these the u.s investors who have all this faith in the fed have dropped their positions down to really low levels so i like to watch uh, manage money in the cot report it's a sub-segment and it it can it it's it's based on it, it, it's comprised of 
uh, the hedge funds and, and future traders. And they are always wrong at tops and bottoms. So they had their highest long, their biggest long positions in 2016 in July at the top. Uh, and they have their, they had their lowest positions in the bottoms. Uh, and it's that way every single time. That's true. And right now their, their positions or long positions are down to uh, only uh, less than 80,000 uh, contracts. And, uh, and they're, they're actually net short, which we've only seen three times in, in the last 20 years. Wow. The, two, the 2000, I mean, 2015 and 2018 lows. So all of these things are telling you that you're going to get a big rally. We just don't know where, just don't know exactly when. Yeah. So Frank, Frank, why don't you take a take a breath? You've you've been on a roll here. This has been unbelievable. Just for everyone again, this is Fred Hickey from the High Tech Strategist. Um, Fred's a a friend. I have no commercial relationship with him, but I urge you to reach out to him, uh, follow him. Uh, The High Tech Strategist is an extraordinary value. It comes out monthly. He's been writing it since the beginning of time. Um, So again, I, I urge everyone to to have a look at the high tech strategist. Okay. So Fred, um, let's go to a couple questions here. Uh, I first want to go to, uh, Emma and then we're going to go to marathon and then AELB. Emma floor is yours. Thanks George. Hi Fred. Um, so when you say the dollar is very overvalued, what are you relative to what? I guess my question. Uh, like, well, a purchase power parity basis that's calculated, and it shows uh, what the what the equivalent purchasing power okay. is in any particular currency it's against each other. Rates and um... now some people call you know there are some people use the, the you may be more familiar with uh, you know the, the McDonald hamburger index, right? But that's kind of a different way of doing it. I've never heard of what that. The cost is. Everybody else know about that? Maybe you could elaborate. Um, I'm just curious because how do we determine? what the fundamental like value of the dollar is because clearly i mean obviously it's been really strong relative to every everything else but you know we're still seeing crazy high inflation due to commodity prices being high so if we look at it relative to commodity price like excluding gold right and you touched on that because gold's done great if you're in japan just not in the united states um so because of the dollar strength but i wonder you know why why say when do we say it's overvalued relative to oil? Does it look overvalued to you? Well, it's relative to what you can purchase elsewhere. The same, the same kind of goods. Really, that's what it what it comes down to, and that's how that PPP is calculated. Okay, um, I'll have to Google that. It's been too long since I learned all that stuff. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. Uh, yeah, uh, you know that that's uh, you, you know you could you could look at it a lot of different ways. I mean, you look look at how much money the 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 the, the Fed has printed here. No one printed more money than we did. In other words, no one has debased the currency more than we have in the major G seven countries. Uh, yet our dollar is stronger. Well, I think the dollar is stronger for for some reasons. You know, one of them is that we currently have. Uh, uh, a debt, a dollar, you know, a lot of a lot of foreign debt that has to be repaid in dollar terms, and that puts upward pressure in it temporarily uh, for a while, and that's one of the reasons why it's higher. So there are some reasons for it to uh, to be where it is right now, but they're not uh, sustainable reasons. Thanks, Emma. All right, let's go. Let's go to uh, uh, AELB and then Marathon. AELB, please unmute yourself. Yeah, thank you, George, uh, for the opportunity and terrific space as usual. Uh, Fred, I mean, I just wanted to ask you because you mentioned earlier that you you believe that the Fed is eventually going to pivot. I mean, this is a given, but and what is going to make it pivot is the fact that they're going to break something. Um, 
I just wanted to ask you, what do you think that is going to break first? Because, I mean, but uh, prior to that, I wanted to share with you my vision of things. I believe that they're going to break the European pension plans. The, the, these are going to be the first victims because if you look at if you have a look at their balance sheets, they hold mainly government debt that pays a negative yield, and at the same time they require seven percent. So I mean we've all seen the UK pension plan debacle, and I'm of the opinion that the European pension plan still just haven't gotten the memo yet. So I I think this is where it's brewing. Just wanted to get your opinion on this subject. Well, I, I wouldn't disagree. Clearly, Europe is in more trouble than we are, um, and their banks, their CDSs, and their banks are are, are not acting well recently. Uh, they're showing signs of distress. But I'll point out that you know it's hard to know where things pop up. What we know is that the the noose is tightening, or and uh, every month they're increasing the amount of money pulled out of the out of the financial system. And uh, I didn't know I didn't know that uh, that the LDI problem was a problem. Um, now I knew about CDOs and all of that, CLOs, uh, CDS, all that stuff in the mid mid two thousands. But I didn't know about that. There are things that pop up when you have when you have created as much money as you have. It, you ha in order to keep the bubbles afloat. Uh, Austrian economic theory will tell you this. You have to keep printing. You you can't stop. And, and as we've seen, uh, things happen. Uh, we we saw it here in two thousand nineteen. Uh, and 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 so it's, it's hard to predict. You, you probably you could be right. I just don't. I just know that I don't know what it is. Thanks for sure. There, there, in AOB, there's just so many things that go wrong. I mean, some we I think we all acknowledge something's going to going to bust, and, and it's 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 impossible to figure out a priori what it's going to be. Thanks for the question, AOB. Let's go to Marathon. Marathon, please unmute yourself. Great, thanks, George. Uh, hey, Fred, I, I, I've got one thing that I'd like to highlight for the audience, and then the second, I've got a question for you. Um, the first, for people who haven't listened to your uh, podcast with Jesse Felder from May of this year, I mean, it was just a spectacular deconstruction of the kind of bear case for technology. And I tell you, I've listened to it five or six times since. It's one of the best uh, podcasts that I've listened to all year. Um, and it's every bit as true today as it was back then. So for those who haven't listened to it, they should. I'm sure today will stack up in, in very fine form against that as well. Um, well thank you very much. The question I have for you is this. So, look, I've been I've been covering gold since kind of the mid 90s. Uh, and I just got back uh, last month from the Denver Gold Show. Um, and, you know, in between the time, I probably attended that show, you know, 14 or 15 times. Um, the dichotomy in between the business case for gold and the enthusiasm of management teams and the the level of pummeling that the buy side had gotten. In other words, the investor base is as bombed out as I can remember them being with the made possible exception of, you know, maybe the late 90s when, you know, they, it hadn't been good in decades. Um, but the, the level of enthusiasm, the, 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 the sort of just crushed by redemptions that the buy side has. And yet, you, I, you know, I went in with a number of different companies, some that I know you know very well uh, and think very highly of. The management teams are all saying this is one of the best environments we have ever seen for buying high quality assets at reasonable prices. In other words, the market price of good gold producing assets uh, is as low as they've ever seen it. Um, can you remember in the last 25 years any time where we've had this divergence of incredibly profitable, high ROI kind of projects with 
you know, the, the, the investment side having been totally bombed out and redeemed out of existence. No, and I think, uh, no, I don't remember. I, you know, I look at the net asset value valuations of them and even the highest, the, the, the largest, the three largest are, are all selling at levels I've never seen. Uh, you know, New, Newmont and Barrick are below one net asset values. And, you know, in a good bull market, you see two to three times. Even in bear markets, you'd be uh, normally you'd see like one and a half times or something like that. Um, you know, Agnigo at less than seven times cash flow, uh, dividend yields. I mean, you know, there was a time when these miners were in trouble, uh, you know, in the mid 2013 timeframe when some of them had bad balance sheets and the balance sheets have all been cleaned up. Uh, you know, Barrick's dividend yield is five and a half, Newmont's 5.3, Agnico's is four. Um, these are high paying dividends, their cash flows are strong. Um, costs have risen a bit here, but uh, but relative to where the price of gold is still, their their uh, margins are still high, not as high as they were when they were when gold was at two thousand. But I think that will be remedied when the gold price goes up again. Um, so no, I haven't. I've never seen this, uh, and I, I I know you know I get I get these comments from subscribers, and I got one just this weekend. I give up. Guy says I quit. I can't take it anymore. Right? That's where they are. Uh, and I think one of the problems was was that. The managements had made mistakes uh, near the top of the 2011-12 bubble. There had been uh, some of them, uh, certain ones had uh, had uh, overextended themselves. They bought, you know, copper assets they shouldn't have purchased at high prices. Uh, they got put too much debt on, and those stocks cratered. So you lost the, the the GDX fell over 70 percent in that time in that uh, bear market period, and then and the and the and the GDXJ fell 90 percent. And I mean, those, that's hard for a lot of people to get over. And then, you know, you start rallying in 2016 and it goes up, like I said, 165% in the GDX or 100, whatever it was, 100 something, 140%. And then it crashes again. And, and, and it has been this way back and forth. And, 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 and the, of course, the longs come in only at the top, right? They don't come in at the bottom. So uh, it's been very difficult for people who aren't um, really as attuned to the valuations to stay there. Thanks for that. Great question, Marathon. Okay, let's go to uh, Bill Powers and Peter C. Bill Powers, please unmute yourself. Yes, uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, longtime subscriber, Fred. Um, Marathon just covered a lot of what I was just going to ask you, but to follow up on his question, I guess, could you expand on your thoughts on the shorting of gold stocks as well as um, their ability to maintain, management's ability to maintain of uh, discipline as the gold price rises. Thank you. Well, I, I think they're disciplined now. I'll start with the latter part question. Uh, they're disciplined now because of the, the turmoil they went through uh, not that many years ago. And so if you listen to the commentary, first of all, all the bad managements were turned out. And, they, and the new managements understand that they would be turned out too if they made the same mistake again. And so they haven't been making the same mistake, and they've been shareholder friendly, and they're buying back shares. The three big companies I mentioned, they're all buying, all have share buybacks, uh, as well as those high dividends. Uh, so they've been, they've been, you know, concentrating on uh, maximizing um, the returns to shareholders, which was not the case uh, when there was, uh, you know, trouble earlier. Uh, so I, I think that that's not going to be an issue because of the pain that they've all gone through and can continue to go through. They realize their stocks are undervalued. They realize the industry is undervalued. And so they're not going to make the same mistake. And the other part of the question was again, oh, oh yeah, about- short, short selling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they, yeah, well, you know, this, the 
the hedge funds have been shorting gold. It's been, I guess, successful for them sometimes. Um, and in the uh, in the COT report, you could see that because they're net, net they're net short for only the third time in history, and the other two times led to huge rallies. But they're also net short. I mean, they're also heavily short the miners themselves. And you can see it in the huge short interest numbers. So, um, you know, uh, 42 million shares short of, uh, of uh, Barrick. Well, you know, I had in any other, I hadn't seen that. It was even higher a couple of weeks ago. I'd never seen that before uh, that I remember. Um, you know, Agnico with 11 million. You know, these are three, four times the normal level. Um, uh, one, a company I like, Alamos, uh, uh, two, you know, uh, five times the level that they normally have. Uh, for short interest, and uh, uh, I, I think they're going to get burned. Thanks for the question, Bill. Okay, Peter C. Peter, please unmute yourself. Uh, thank you, uh, Fred. I've seen for some time you've uh, you've had big positions in oil and gas uh, in oil and gas stocks. So could you just uh, cover uh, why that area? What's your outlook? And you have a particular basically large cap U.S. centric uh, oil and gas. Can you kind of cover those three areas, please? Yeah, well, uh, I, I knew that uh, uh, way, way, way back when I had invested a little bit in oil and gas uh, like 40 years ago. And so I knew a little bit about it. I had some people that, you know, live down in Texas and stuff. So I know a little bit about it, uh, just enough to be dangerous, maybe. The uh, But I knew that when the price... I knew that we had been underinvesting, right, in the in that industry. Uh, CapEx spending had been down quite a bit from the prior highs years earlier, and uh, that, uh, but that uh, also that you know the ESG story that we're all going to electrify immediately that was a bogus story, that we were going to be needing fossil fuels for a lot longer than uh, the market anticipated, and then we saw prices collapse, right? So they started lower and then they collapsed, and when that happened, I I said I have to buy these. Uh, and I did. So I bought because I'm not I mean, I, I have to cover a lot of, you know, I cover like 100 tech stocks. I cover dozens of gold stocks and I didn't have time to uh, to spend a whole lot of uh, time on the oil and gas. So I initially stuck to the uh, the very largest ones that were paying dividends and all that, like Exxon, Chevron and those. Uh, and then I kind of branched off a little bit more to Chesapeake and Devon and uh, uh, some of the natural gas plays couple of natural gas plays. I'm not heavily into that. I just know that that's going to be, uh, I mean, I had a fairly substantial position. I've cut them back a bit because they, when they went up uh, so much early in this year, I mean, they've done really well this year, uh, but they had done even better earlier in the first quarter. Uh, and they're back to their highs, near their highs. I, I want to be invested in there, but it's not my expertise. Uh, it also helps offset my natural gas bill, which is going skyward here. <laughs> that's great. How, how did you know to get out, Fred, at that time? How did I know I'm, to get out? They just had gone up so much. You know, I sold a bat. I, I, you know, it's. I did it with the gold stocks too. I, 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 in the first quarter, it was such a big quarter for me, and what was a historically bad quarter for everyone else. Um, you know, I was up double digits at the time in my portfolio, and I said I got to pull back a bit on this. Uh, and so I sold a bunch of, I uh, sold some of my my gold stocks, and I, I sold some of my energy stocks and I put them into treasuries, short-term treasuries, and I'm sitting on a lot of cash right now waiting for uh, some sort of an opportunity. Are you Thanks for the question, Peter, Peter. I'd like to go to the next speaker, please. Hey, Porter, uh, good to see you. Porter, please unmute yourself. you have a question? 
Yeah, my, my question, I don't know if you covered this, Fred. Um, again, appreciate uh, like the uh, speakers here. I appreciate uh, you coming on and I'm a big fan and, and uh, subscriber. But my question was about um, the semis. I don't know if you covered this and your thought on, on this, this semi-cycle, especially given the news flow around <clears throat> China last week and, and um, the U.S. and some of the sanctions there. So that'd be uh, really appreciated. Thanks so much. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, I've been saying for the last couple of years that uh, the semiconductor market would be the place to be short uh, most. Uh, you know, I saw things I didn't think I'd ever see before. I, I saw NVIDIA, for example, uh, become the eighth largest company in market value in the world uh, with uh, at 100 times earnings, peak earnings, and 30 times sales for a cyclical semiconductor company that had been benefiting from a perfect situation where you had, um, you had a, you know, they do, they're in the PC market, for example, uh, and the PC market had gone down for seven consecutive years. But when COVID hit, all of a sudden uh, in the first quarter of 2021, uh, from what were negative numbers, it went up 55% because everybody was stuck at home and everybody then went out. They also had stimmy checks and everybody bought PCs. They bought smartphones. They bought monitors. They bought gaming consoles. They bought all of that stuff and pulled it forward, pulled it forward. And that and it was the same thing in, in the smartphone area where you had stagnant growth in smartphones. So it's a mature business. And we had a big jump. Uh, I think it was 26 percent in that first quarter of 2021. So those weren't going to be sustained. And that's why I say about peak earnings here. Um, they weren't going to be sustained. And what we've seen is uh, the PC growth now dropped from from that uh, 55% to 15% to now minus 19.5% for the Q, for Q3 numbers just estimated by Gartner this past week. I mean, it's a collapse going on. And it's a similar kind of thing in, uh, in the smartphone area uh, where we're seeing, uh, we're seeing negative numbers now. Uh, China, which is you know has its own problems, that's the largest smartphone maker in the world, and their July sales dropped thirty one percent year over year. It's a plunge. Now you had all this all of these shortages that were going on because <laughs> they weren't ready for that surge to occur. You had all these shortages and that led to all kinds of double and triple ordering like I've never seen in the decades that I've followed this. And so my argument in my newsletter was these are going to be the things to short. These are the ones. And so for now, um, you know, we've seen about a 47 percent decline in the SOX index. Pretty big. But, you know, to take uh, example, uh, NVIDIA again, it's still selling at 10 times sales. It's still selling at 35 times earnings and their numbers are falling apart. Um, you know, it's going to be down their, their earnings are declining year over year. So that P.E. ratio is going higher. Um, you know, inventory levels in, in, in the, in the, in the channel, uh, and Dell and Hewlett and all those companies, they soared by billions of dollars. They can't get rid of this stuff. I saw on Thursday in digit times, uh, a story, notebook manufacturer orders. Now this is to the man, to the makers of these over in Asia, right? Down 75% sequentially in October and another 90% in November. In other words, they're going to zero. Right now, Dell will continue to sell computers, but the, 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 their suppliers numbers are going to zero. And that means semiconductor components. The two largest end markets for for semiconductors are PCs and smartphones. Smartphones, number one. And then and then you have things like autos and auto sales are down at 13 million level. And, and you go down the list. Game console sales are down. 
And we haven't even hit the heart of the recession yet. This is all because of what happened, what was pulled forward. So there's, you know, I think there's still a lot, a lot of play there on the short side. Uh, Nvidia being one of them, Micron being another. And they have massive inventories. Uh, they just announced uh, terrible numbers, guided for losses. I think they will see, and I've seen it before with Micron. You're going to see negative gross margins. Okay, negative gross margins. So they already have forecast negative cash flow for next quarter and challenging in the quarter after that. So these stocks are still too high. They're going to come down further. Uh, because of the nature, it's it's a it went from the perfect environment to the perfect storm almost overnight. It, it, it was amazing. That's a great question. Thanks so much for that, Porter. Uh, I'm going to go to Sandy in a second, but Fred, before we do that, I had a question, and I don't want this to devolve into a uh, crypto room because there are many <laughs> uh, there are many topics which are you know sort of really polarizing. The bears aren't going to yes. convince the bulls, and the bulls aren't going to convince the bears. So I'm just curious and. Subsequent questions. I don't want any questions to Fred. Fred on crypto, but Fred, if you could just go on the record, what are your thoughts on crypto and on Bitcoin? Okay, I, I, there's a saying. I'm from Missouri, right? I need to be. It needs to be proven to me. What I see with the crypto right now is uh, I see twenty-one thousand crypto coins. <laughs> I don't think all of them are going to survive. I can say that with some certainty. Uh, I think most of them are going to go away. But there's still 50 of them with over a billion dollars of valuation cap here. Uh, they're going lower, most of them. Um, now, whether you know Bitcoin or uh, you know or some other one survives this, I don't know. What I do know is is that Bitcoin came about in 2009, the same time the Fed started printing money, and basically for most of the time it's been rallying and falling with the Nasdaq. Uh, it's supposed it's argued by the, the supporters of Bitcoin that it's a store of value. But so far, I haven't seen that yet. I'm not saying it won't be, but I haven't seen that. What I see is uh, a speculative object that's traded by the same people that uh, a lot of cases that are also still trading meme stocks. Um, and and so, uh, you know, I'm, I, I, I wanted I'd want to see this whole bear market play out and to see that, you know, Bitcoin was making some. Well, it had some use, too. It has to be either a store value. It's not been a, a medium of exchange, as many people had said it would be. In fact, that's all kind of fallen apart since then. Uh, the only argument seems to be a store of value and portability. And you know, I, I will grant that it does have portability. But uh, I don't know if it's a store of value. I know, I know gold's a store of value for 5,000 years. I know that all these countries and central banks, I mean, the, the central banks are piling up gold. Uh, China bought China's buying at a, at, a, at a pace. The Bank of China is buying. They don't report this, but I know this. They report they're buying at a pace double they were what they were last year. And the, the Bank of England, India has been buying it. There's been 300 tons uh, through the month of July, I think it is, uh, bought by central banks. They don't buy Bitcoin, um, and, and they also don't want an alternative currency like that threatening their own currency. So I won't say no, never, but I'll say at this point uh, it hasn't proven anything to me. Thanks for that, Fred. Okay. Sandy, uh, please unmute yourself. Your question. Hey, thank you, George. Um, so, question for Fred: uh, Like, you know, what's what's your thought on the uh, Fed balance sheet reduction? Because um, there's nothing, uh, not much we see since the last six months. But they promised to. Uh, I mean, they did say that you know there would be a lot of uh, reduction that would be happening. Uh, would that be an indicator of uh, of a bottom pivot? What's your thought on that? Well, they're only done 200 billion so far. Um, 
obviously that's a tightening. Whenever they have tried to pull back, it's been a problem. They've never been able to uh, to get very far. They tried it in 2017-18 timeframe. They tried it and then they had to pull back uh, and go print again. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think you know it's just it's another it's another thing where you're taking money out of the system. Um, the liquidity is uh, shrinking, um, and it's going to help cause problems. Thanks. Appreciate the question. So, Fred, let me ask you, um, when you look at the investing public, uh, I've been surprised that, uh, that they really haven't sold more. I think that's maybe in the process of changing. But when you sort of look at, uh, you know, the, what was a trillion dollars plus that plowed in the market last year, and so little's come out this year. Um, do you think this sort of, uh, you know, uh, structured buying um, 401ks, all that sort of stuff, it's going to continue? Or do you think the heat's being turned up in the kitchen to enough at a certain point they're going to cry uncle and we're going to see the public puke? Um, yeah, I, I, I think it has slowed down that process a bit, the passive money, but it doesn't end it. We've seen big drops here, uh, some pretty sharp ones, and we've seen the uh, liquidity uh, uh, dry up a bit here and there. And I, I think, uh, you know, it's amazing to me. You know, it's one of the reasons why I don't think we're at the end of, of this because, you know, I saw uh, ETF Trends said that ARK had gotten $400 million in, uh, in, in September. I mean, this is at, you're down 78%. You're still getting money in. But I think when you had such a long bull market without any kind of uh, bear market, People really have believed have become to believe in the Fed that they'll be there and they'll, that it will turn around and it's hard to break that. Uh, so, um, you know, it's just taking time. But, you know, that's why the pukes at the end are always hardest and, 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 and sharpest. And, and that's when the big cap tech stocks, which they are also hiding in, too, that's where a lot of the passive money is. That's when they go. So uh, even when we didn't have this passive flows, if you go through the various declines of history, uh, you know, in 1990, uh, the big there was three, four tech stocks were the biggest. So it was uh, it was Cisco, Intel, Microsoft, and Oracle, and they fell forty to sixty percent in three months in nineteen ninety to bring us to that bottom low. And we see that every time. It it, it it takes a lot of time. This time it might take longer because of the length of the bull market. The fact that the Fed has always been there supporting them, uh, and and a lot of this these passive flows the way that they they work. Hey Fred, uh, just not for nothing. Not you 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 represent yourself to be the world's foremost auto analyst, but. Surely you must have some thoughts about the electric car company that shall not be named. <laughs> yeah, well, 80, 86 PE, seven hundred billion dollar market cap, and uh, and I don't know. I saw their last their last uh, last month. They had a little little delivery problem where not a delivery problem but where they produced more than they could deliver. And you know the shorts on this have been talking about competition for a long time, but it really is here. Uh, you know Tesla's cars get very poor ratings. Uh, you know, consumer reports, those kind of things. And then others like the Mustang and others are getting much better ratings. And then you have all the foreign co uh, companies as well piling in. And, you know, auto companies don't have, uh, you know, 86 PEs and, and you know, sure. so, so, but, but what it gets, it gets back again to safe havens, right? People hiding in safe havens at the, at the end. And, and so, you know, Amazon has 108 PE and their earnings are falling. You know, Apple has its 24p. Microsoft has its 25p. I showed that, you know, historically, that's not how you end these things. So they're right. all hiding, and Tesla's one of the ones they're hiding. Fred, Fred as long as we're going to go to Tommy Thornton and Amy in a second. One other question for you, though, because I know you write regularly about these stocks in your letter. Um, 
looking at the rest of the fang specifically uh amazon which i think has problems uh netflix uh meta any any thoughts on any of any of the other fang names fred yeah, I think, uh, you know, Meta might be okay. I mean, they're obviously having trouble with TikTok, uh, losing share there. They might be okay if they weren't spending, pouring all their money into the Metaverse, which just isn't there. Uh, you, you may have seen the story on, uh, on the numbers. They're, they're kind of collapsing. People use even even the early adopters aren't using it any longer. There just isn't any applications for that of any use, at least now. And he's pouring billions of dollars into that. I, I just think that makes Meta untouchable as a long uh, and maybe it'll keep going lower if he keeps pouring money into that uh, as he loses some share. So that's a problem. Uh, Amazon, you know, uh, very, uh, you know, they have a really good, uh, obviously, AWS is a, a great business, generates all their profits, all of it. Uh, but, you know, uh, their, their bigger part of their business is, uh, is retail and distribution. And obviously, oil prices have been hurting them. Their labor costs are up. Uh, uh, lots of issues there. Um, and, you know, lots of issues, uh, falling earnings and 100 mate PE don't really go together. So that's a problem. Um, you know, Google, I like more of all of them. It has a, has a more uh, stable business search and that kind of thing. And the PE isn't so bad. What about uh, Netflix? Yeah, I don't really follow that. It's more of a media company. So I, I really don't want to speak on that one. That's fair. That's fair. Okay, let's go to Tommy Thorne and then Amy. Tommy, please unmute yourself. Hey, Fred, can you hear me? Yeah, how are you, Tom? Hey, I'm good. Uh, last time um, we were together in your at your house, we did an interview <laughs> for Real Vision, uh, which was right. really um, a lot of fun uh, getting together with you. And I've been a, a long-term follower, of course. Um, so, I, really, you covered a lot of broad things. Oh, actually, the funny thing is, we were laughing the day we did that interview because I think it was the that Long Island Ice Tea Company, that fraudulent right. stock changed their name to long island blockchain Remember yes that? Yeah, yes that was, i do um <laughs> so that was that was fun um my question just goes back to gold gold uh maybe i'm i'm naive maybe i i this just it just seems like everyone had said for the last hundred years that um when inflation comes gold is going to be the only place you want to be and so far it hasn't really done anything other than really go down and you know gold mining stocks which i'm long uh some gdx right now uh just really haven't been able to get out of their way they're very cheap uh what's it going to take for the world to change and to figure out that gold is an inflation hedge uh and the gold miners to go up i mean i i think this market has been one that people chase anything that's green so maybe that's just the simple answer well, yeah, I think that'll happen. They'll chase anything green, and it's a you know it's not that big a, a market, particularly the miners themselves. But you know, I kind of I touched on that earlier. I think a lot of it has its inverse uh, confidence in the Fed right now. There's confidence in their hawkishness that they'll be able to, to succeed here, uh, 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 raising rates, uh, slowing the economy, and then lowering them again, and uh, and, and and normalizing their balance sheet a little bit. Uh, I don't have that faith. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why the dollar has been strong, and that's how, that's helped help gold. But you have to often remember, look, we were back in March. We were almost at a record, just barely off a record high. It's only seven months ago. Uh, and like I said in, in uh, earlier, in non-dollar terms, gold has done very well. 
um, you know, it, it, you just have to be patient. People people don't have patience. Um, it's easier for me to say because I'm not managing money and people aren't screaming at me every day. But um, but you really just have to be patient. Uh, long history, gold does well in, in negative interest rates. Gold does well in inflationary periods. Gold does well in once bear markets. It does well. In, so all the conditions are there except for the dollar, which is currently strong, and the faith in the Fed, maybe most importantly. Thanks for the question, Tommy. By the way, if anyone in the audience, if you've got a question, um, I've sent you and you want to come up to the stage, and I don't know who you are, I sent you a direct message. I want to please let me know what your question is. Thank you. Uh, let's move on. I want to go to Amy and then Richard. Amy, the floor is yours. Good to see you, Amy. Hey there. Uh, I was I was actually just listening. I, I didn't have a question or anything. It's a great conversation. Very nice. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Hey, Amy, you, you always have a good nose for things. What do you think of the, uh, the, the bounce in the market the last couple of days? Um, well, I expected it. Um, you know, we had the, a ton, a ton, a ton of put buying. It was, I think at the ratio was like three to one. It was huge. Um, so, and a lot of them were in the money. So I figured when they, when people started closing out their positions, because most of the time they're not executing them. So, um, you know, it would, it would be forcing MMs to buy, the shares and I think it, it just um, you know the the sentiment was so 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 bearish and it just like it felt like a lot of pressure building so I was I was long going into today um, I did some repositioning I did pretty well on those and did some repositioning today um, Netflix I I heard you ask about Netflix it's an interesting one just to me just because. I mean, what is it at now? Almost 250 down from 600. So it's it's pretty beat down, but it still has a PE of, of I think, 20, right? Um, so I was looking at Netflix today, but I just couldn't pull the trigger on it because it just, I have some, some doubts about their their new ad platform. Um, just, just and so that, like, are people going to really, like, is it going to bring subscribers back or are people who are paying $18 a month right now, just going to lower their subscriptions to six ninety nine, which a doesn't bring subscribers back for them. And it doesn't bring them any money. It actually loses the money. So I'm not, I'm not fully convinced about the ad supported format on Netflix. So I didn't jump in on it today. Well, that's, that's well played Amy. You can't, you can't get them all right. So thank, thanks okay. for that. All right, let, yeah. let's move on. I want to go to, um, the big long, and then we're going to do Richard. Richard, please mute yourself. Big long, the floor is yours. Hi, Fred. Just a quick question. On, I just missed the end of the gold discussion. So um, I, I presume you're bullish gold. How would you play it? Through through gold stocks or holding something like uh, Sprott Physical um, uh, Gold Trust? Um, well, I do both. Uh, I own the miners, and uh, I own the miners, and I own gold. And the gold um, Sprott's a, a very good uh, vehicle to do that. Um, the gold, I don't really trade. <laughs> I I, uh, I just hold that, and I really have held that all, for a long, long time. The better part of two decades. The miners, I do trade because they are so volatile. And so I had mentioned earlier, I had sold. Um, sold a chunk of them uh, early in the year when when uh they were some of them were going on i mean for example newmont had gone up to a record high in, in march and i knew there was some uh cost problems there so I, I i slashed my position in that one the number one gold stock and, and some others as well that had gone up too much too far too fast 
And so I'll trade those, uh, the miners. Uh, currently, I'm, uh, I'm more bullish because they're, they're so cheap and they're down right now. And I've been adding to my positions, but I still have a lot of cash on the sidelines and those treasuries that I could add even more if they go lower. I always like to have, uh, our, um, uh, have that flexibility. Thanks. Thanks for the question. Richard, the uh, floor is yours. Please unmute yourself. Fred, do you follow the uh, physical inventories at COMEX? And if so, do you have any comments on the downs? Yeah, yeah, we, Richard, we already covered that. He has, he, he, well, yeah, actually not the COMEX, right, uh, George, sorry. not the COMEX. Sorry. And there is a point there. He's, he has a good point. The COMEX inventories have been uh, declining. I think they're down 25% or so in the last year or so. Uh, or a couple of years. And uh, that is an issue uh, because uh, there is tightness in the market. And, uh, you know, that those comics are supposed to be backing the uh, all the derivatives that are out there. So that could that could I don't know if that's going to lend to lead to an issue, but it might. Well, the, the platinum and the silvers registered is down a lot more than 25. Yeah. Well, yeah. No I, one I, I, I fall silver, but not uh, platinum or, or palladium. That's Thank great. you. Have a great day. Thank you, Richard. Okay, we're going to go to uh, Bobby and then uh, Rob Isbitz. Bobby? Hey, Fred. Uh, quick question. Just want to get your take on 30-year U.S. Treasury yields, 20-year, the long-term, the, the long uh, uh, long-dated U.S. Treasury yields and uh, duration risk. And if, if, if Fed pivots, the sensitivity uh, for these going up, just, just curious on the, uh, the long end. You mentioned the short end. I know there's a lot of people that think that uh, the bonds are a, a, a long trade right now. I'm not one of them. It's not my specialty, but uh, when you when I, I mentioned how concerned I was about who the buyers would be given the amount of treasuries that have to be issued here going forward, and that could put upward pressure. And I think the market is positioned for decline in yields, so I wouldn't want duration. I like I like uh, I like you know you can get four and a half plus percent in this very short term, uh, without taking that duration risk, and I think that's a lot better play. Thanks. Thanks for the question. Hey, Rob, good to see you. What's up? Please unmute yourself, Rob. Hey. Yep. Hey, uh, same, George and Fred. Uh, thanks uh, for this. Uh, let me, you know, I, I tend to look at the world, especially this year, uh, in terms of the NASDAQ and everything else. Uh, in fact, I think I probably wrote an article a long time ago talking about how tech shouldn't really just be a sector. It should almost be its own asset class, tech stocks. Um, and you know, I was looking back, and I'd like you to comment on this, uh, because maybe this is part of the sea change, and maybe it's a microcosm of the entire uh, U.S. stock market going forward. Uh, from the beginning of 2014 to the beginning of 2022, so let's call it the last eight full years, the Dow was up 161%. The Qs were up 387%. So that's like two and a half times. And we've had periods like this before, as you know, the 90s. Um, but Before that, 60s, 70s, <laughs> basically and that, every every decade. Yeah, and, 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 that, and, yeah, and that's why you're Fred Hickman. <laughs> uh because because you can cite that uh, off the top of your head uh so thank you but uh you know going i mean this year it's been there's been quite a difference and and again I, i've written quite a bit and spoken to a lot of people about how you know if all you've done is put 50 percent of your money in you know dia and 50 percent psq to short the nasdaq uh, you have a heck of a positive return this year 
And so as somebody who really, really dials in on the tech stocks, but obviously follows the whole market, do you see, what do you see about, let's call it the relationship between mega cap traditional, the Dow, uh, and mega cap, uh, uh, you know, FANG plus in the queues? Well, right now the market's, and it has been, you know, it's been dominated by tech um the valuations all the top and it was that way in 2000 uh, all the top mar- uh, you know this is a bubble it's a tech bubble as well as a everything bubble um the tech you know all the big names that they were close to 30 percent of the whole s&p's market cap it was insane um you know and, and a lot of other stocks weren't uh there you know i i suppose I, there were certainly values in other areas um you know i look at i don't fall banks i know the you know they're a lot cheaper. I, I I am in the energy area. They're tremendously cheaper. So the overvaluation has clearly been in in the tech again, uh, in a, in a big way. And I don't think that'll be sustained. It never is. I, I guess my question is to what degree? I just as you were speaking. Uh, I mean, this year that relationship has obviously turned around. Dow's down sixteen. The Q's right. are down thirty two. Uh, I, I think you know if somebody were on here and, and were uber bullish, they would say, "Oh, what a great buying opportunity on the spread between those two." Uh, I, I guess I'm I'm asking you, you know, without your crystal ball in hand, how do you how do you see it going forward in terms of let's say the urgency of this turning around, and and once it does, because I think we both agree that it will, uh, in favor of let's say Dow versus uh, you know Qs as a as a proxy for the overall market. Uh, uh, do you think it is something that's sustainable? Are we sitting here three years from now and say, yep, yep, Dow is still eating the NASDAQ's lunch? Well, um, you know, I, I, I talked about what happened. I don't know if you missed that part, but how how, how the great, uh, the most over, most valued stocks in the 2000 timeframe, the biggest stocks in the world, are down so much compared to oh, what yeah. they were 20 years ago. So. Yep. Do I think this group is going? I think some of them will. You know, Microsoft did well, and it might continue to do well. You have to take them individually. Um, you, you know, and, and and as I do, um, and 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 you know, one of the things I want to do, I, I did get. Uh, I bought tech stocks in October of two thousand and two. Mm-hmm. So I've been bearish, and I bought them. I got rid of all my puts, and I bought them, uh, and I, I did really well along them. Um, and, uh, a lot of them got bought out and then I bought them again in October of 2008. Now I was five months too early, but that was okay. Um, and I, I held some of them, um, for, for a while, uh, probably criticized for maybe not, not too, not long enough, but, uh, you know, that's fair enough. But, you know, I held Microsoft nearly four years. I had to wait for that one to, they told, as I said earlier, the PE ratio was really low, uh, and it stayed low. They considered it a PC company, even though I was arguing till I was blue in the face that it was the, one of the leading cloud players back then. Uh, you really have to, um, you know, there'll be some things that will, you know, one of the things that, you know, George and I talked about this even way before we even started this. Uh, he, he asked me about this. You know, there's a chart that shows what the winners were each decade, and they change. The, same, the winners from the 60s and the 70s and mm-hmm. the 80s, all the way through, they're always different. So um, you have to be very careful. I mean, Apple wasn't even on the radar screen in 2000, basically. And now it's the largest cap in the world. Um, you know, that's the way it is. Tech, uh, tech, you know, one of the things I forget about tech is that there's, uh, there's obsolescence. So, you know, was the mini computer companies back in the 60s 
the Burroughs, Univac, uh, NCR, Control Data, Honeywell, uh, IBM. Not anymore. Uh, then you had the mini computer companies. I already talked about those. They all went away. And you had networking companies, and a long list of them that went away. And uh, and you know, and, and it goes in waves like that. Uh, but no one factors in obsolescence when they're paying 100 times earnings for things or 30 times sales. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for, yeah, Rob, yep. thanks for the question. Hey, Fred, I just want to real quickly with you. A little free association. And, and if, uh, it's, if you have no opinion, just, just say no opinion. But these are names I can recall in past issues you've spoken on. Um, so just free association. Spotify. Buy, sell, hold. No opinion. Uh, PayPal and Square. Ooh, they're getting into areas. If they were just sticking to their knitting, they might be okay. But I'm worried about uh, their branch, how they're branching off into, uh, you know, uh, buy now, pay later kind of stuff, lend, lending money. I, I, I stay away. Um, Zoom. But I am interested in them. I will say that. I am interested in them. I'm following them. Zoom. Uh, well, they're getting eaten alive by, you know, first of all, Zoom was a, was a beneficiary of COVID, right? Uh, but that, but the worst part of it is, is that they're 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 getting eaten alive by Microsoft Teams, and I don't see that changing. So that that, that there actually is a fundamental problem there, is is, is what you're saying. Um, yeah, absolutely. Okay. How about Shopify? Well, good technology, really interesting, but the valuation is still uh, I think it's a two hundred and something PE or something like that, or or no more earnings at all. I think right now. Uh, yeah, I, I, certainly good technology, and I'd be interested at, at, at lower prices. AMD. Wow, uh, that's one on my rare screen that I would love to buy at some point. As I said, that you know they just dropped their numbers like fifty-three percent or something like that a couple weeks ago, uh, because they're getting hit by these uh, collapses in orders. Uh, still a little pricey, uh, but I think they're in a position to gain even more share against Intel over time, and so they would be a winner over time. Okay, Boston area company, HubSpot. Yeah, I don't follow that one very much. Okay. And now let's go to some of the semiconductor-related guys. That could be Micron, AMAT, uh, LAM Research. Any of those any better or any worse than the other ones? Well, Micron's the worst mm -hmm. uh, because they're commodity, and the inventories there are just horrendous. I mean, by their own, by their own, uh, what they, they said in their last conference hall, they're going to 150 days of inventory. It's just going higher. The cash flow is negative. Uh, it's too high. The stock's too high. Um, PC market's coming down. I mean, everything fundamental is wrong there. Uh, and uh, I think we'll see negative mar gross margins again. So that's the worst. The the uh, semiconductor equipment companies are really great companies. So applied materials. In fact, I, I had said in the newsletters back a few years ago, I said, if you wanted to be invested, you know, I was worried about you know, Fed bubbles and everything. If you want to be invested, that would be the place to be. Um, and and but one of the reasons why I said that was was that China would be building out their domestic semiconductor industry. And uh, as you've seen from the most recent uh, headlines here in the last week or so, uh, the Biden administration is putting uh, a, uh, um, the clamp on on them uh, being able to uh, ship advanced processes uh, to the Chinese. And, you know, for example, Lamb Research, a uh, great company. Well, they have a little too much exposure to micro, uh, not so much micron, but just memory in general when micron is in that business. But their Chinese business in 2017 was 13 percent. Last year was 35%, a third, a third of their business, and a lot of that is going away. So right now, uh, things are going badly for them, but uh, they're still great companies. I would be interested in buying them at the right price.
That's terrific. Okay, let's go to uh, Nostra, House of Dumbass. By the way, that is a great <laughs> screen name. Please unmute yourself, Nostra. Uh, hey, Fred. Uh, I, I just wanted to know, what can you make of the Shanghai Gold Exchange consistently trading 30 to $50 uh, premium over LBMA and COMEX? And also, can you comment on the Fed currently running at a net operating loss? Thank you. Well, uh, yeah, uh, and the Shanghai Gold Exchange, uh, yeah, uh, it has been running. I mentioned that six straight weeks. I don't ever remember seeing that. And it just it tells you just how tight it is. Um, they're not able to get enough in. They're only the, the they have to allow the banks are the ones that are allowed to bring in. There's only a certain number, I think about 12 or something like that. They, they're allowed to even bring the gold into the country. And uh, right now it's just too tight. So um, uh, it's indicative that there isn't a lot of physical inventory out there. There's been plenty of paper gold. But uh, by made up by the the, the Western uh, investors who uh, who create it uh, and futures and options and that kind of thing. But uh, it shows you just how much demand there is in China. I mean, they've got look the Chinese. Uh, they have culturally long term holders of gold. Um, they uh, their stock market is falling rapidly. Their economy is dropping. They have a housing bubble that's uh, that's imploding. Uh, most of their wealth is tied up. Something like eighty percent is tied up in real estate. Uh, you talk about no, there is no alternative. Well, the alternative in China is gold, and I think you're seeing it in those sustained premiums. Uh, and they can't get enough of it in. Uh, as far as the Fed balance sheet being a negative, well, you know they can always print more money. I don't, I don't really, I'm not really concerned about that so much, except that they can't. Uh, the one thing I do is interested in, they're not able to send money to the Treasury every month anymore, and so it makes more money that they have to come up with. Hey, Fred, totally different idea. Um, question. Could you speak to um, non-GAAP versus GAAP accounting? <laughs> and specifically, I'm interested in stock-based compensation. Uh, we have this sort of Rube Goldberg perpetual money machine thing going. And, uh, you know, non-GAAP's a scam. You know it. I know it, et cetera, et cetera. But now that, now that the market's going down, not up, um, and, you're, and you start to think about what the effect of um, you know that the options aren't worth as much as they used to, and what it means for co- what it means for companies' uh, costs or or, 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 or or need to issue more stock options, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe you could just you could just riff, riff on the topic of stock stock based compensation and what real problems it's going to create for companies now. Yeah. So um, the. Uh... You know, if you look at the, a lot of the software companies in particular, but all, all the tech companies are doing it now, and most most companies are going non-GAAP. Uh, Intel, for example, just went just turn just went that way uh, within the past uh, earlier this year. Uh, so one by one, uh, they're all going that way because it inflates their numbers. Um, they uh, they're able to, if you take a software company for example, let's take Salesforce. What are their costs? Well, their costs are software engineers to develop the software, marketing, all of those kinds of things. Um, and also, so costs to develop and, and sell. And also, to they also, uh, they're kind of a roll-up company, not kind of, they are a roll-up company that have been buying, you know, 70 different acquisitions in the last several years. Some of them very large. Uh, and they've been getting their growth that way. So, but they, so that's, there are two pieces that they're stripping out of, out of uh, to get a non-GAAP number from a GAAP number. These, and one of them is stock-based compensation. Well, we're seeing larger and larger amounts of of their of these software companies paying their employees in stock-based compensation. It's been growing and growing and growing. In some cases, it's seventy percent of their 
<laughs> their revenues. Uh, it's insane. And, and it can turn uh, losses, big losses into earnings. Or some cases, it could turn, um, you know, Salesforce, for example. They, uh, on a gap basis, they have um, their PE is like only 30. It, on a non-gap basis, it's 290. It's 10 times, okay? 10 times. Um, that's how much of an effect it has on, on their numbers. Um, so, and in Salesforce's case, they're also, and all these others, they're, they're taking out uh, not only stock-based compensation, but the cost of the, of the acquisitions they're making. And it goes into intangible, it goes into intangibles and they're not, and it's supposed to be amortized and they're taking, they're stripping that out. Well, that's a cost that it's a cost to, for that's your product that you're selling. And you're taking that cost out and you're taking the cost of all of the uh, uh, all the employee expenses. And then you're showing numbers and they're completely bogus. Um, you know, they shouldn't be doing this. Uh, now, what's been happening is as the stock market collapses and we see a 35 percent decline in, in these, uh, you know, sales forces get hit really hard. Uh, all those stock options are, uh, that they were being issued uh, aren't worth anything. And, and so they're requiring now to be paid in cash. If they're paid in cash, that is deducted from your earnings. So you are, uh, you are uh, seeing earnings. You're going to see earnings that are going to be under pressure uh, from this because uh, tech, in Silicon Valley, they don't want to get paid in stock in a bear market. Wow. What could possibly go wrong? All right. right. Well, one, yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things that happened in the 2000 time frame, and they were supposed to stop this, right? Because it did go on then, not to the extent it does to, it is today. But one of one of the things that went on was they then repriced all the options, and the real loser was the shareholder. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. All right. Well, Fred, this has been wonderful. You've been so generous with your time. It's an hour and forty five minutes. So, what a public service. We it's been very enjoyable. Um, we've all learned a lot. Hopefully. You've enjoyed the questions, and uh, I hope you'll come back again. I urge everyone to take a look. Um, the high-tech strategist, you'll be shocked by how little it costs. Um, Fred's been writing it since 1987, so it's not his first rodeo, and this is not a market for uh, rookies, so I think Fred is the kind of tour guide you're looking for. So reach out to Fred. Give him a follow on Twitter, and uh, you can write to him. He's in New Hampshire, and um, as you can see, he's full of ideas. So, Fred, I want to thank you. This has been fantastic. I hope you consider coming coming back again and not just in the future. Thank yeah, you, it's been fun, George. It's good, good to catch up with you again after all these years. Great. Th thanks so much, Fred. Good night. Thanks, David. Right. Thanks, Emmy. Marathon. Everyone take care. Bye-bye.